Today we're going to finish our study of the book of Jude. We've been on the book of Jude for a month, uh, except for last Sunday, and the book of Jude is a little, little book. It's a little itty-bitty book. It's 25 verses. But as I said um, a couple weeks ago, it's just strong as horseradish. I mean, it's just <laughs> strong. Because Jude is concerned that we are just coasting through the spiritual life. We're just coasting along, just kind of la, 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 la. Unaware that we are in a war. Unaware that the spiritual life is not a playground, it is a battleground. And so he says in verse 3, this, this, he uses this word in verse 3 that is find, found nowhere else in the Bible. It's this word, this Greek word, epagonitsamai. You know, when you say it, you just kind of have to say it from the gut. Epagonitsamai. It, it means to struggle, to fight with, with intensity. Because Jude, who wanted to write to us this, the, the, he wanted to write to us about a sweet, warm topic, our salvation. In verse 3, he says, I wanted to write about our common salvation. But he's moved, moved by the Holy Spirit, to write to us instead about combat, struggle. He's, he says, I felt it necessary to write to you that you contend earnestly for the faith. And so he lays out the, in this book of struggle, he lays out the focus that we need to have, which is that we're in the war of the ages. One day we're going to go home and we're going to lay down our weapons and we're going to rest in the joy of the king because we'll be with the king. But that's not where we live today. And so when we started this series, I hearkened back to the Minutemen of old. The Minutemen who had as their responsibility to, at a minute's notice, to grab their weapon, their musket or their hatchet or their knife, and to ready themselves for combat, to steal themselves for combat at a minute's notice to defend their home and to defend their land. And so Jude tells us to do the same thing. He says, ready yourself for combat, not physical combat. I'm not talking about a pistol or a shotgun or an AR-15. He's talking about spiritual weapons for a spiritual combat, for a spiritual war, which is actually much more impactful than a physical war. I mean, a physical war and physical combat is real. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's insignificant. It is significant. It's just the real combat is in the soul. It's in your thoughts. That, that's, what, that's what the two forces in the world, right? There, there, there's, the one force is God and his Christ and angels and his followers and heaven. And the other force is the devil and fallen angels and hell and their followers. And those two competing forces, which God, of course, wins, right? But those two competing, fo competing forces are competing for your thoughts. Your actions just follow your thoughts. That's why the scripture says, as a man is, as a man thinks, so he is. So we're going to look at the final verses of this book today, verses 17 through 25. And we're going to see Jude tell us to pick up our weapons, to pick them up, our defensive spiritual weapons, and use them to defend ourselves against the attack 
of the false teachers because we live in a world that is hostile to God and to his Christ and to his daughters and to his sons. That's you and me. We're the children of God. And so if we're willing, if we have the audacity to identify ourselves as a follower of Christ, then the world's going to mock you. They just are. The world, if you lived in Pakistan, the world will do more than mock you. It would persecute you. We live in a world that is hostile to God and to his Christ. And so Jude's going to say, pick up your defensive spiritual weapons and use them in humility, not in arrogance, but use them. And we're going to see those weapons, those spiritual weapons today. Last time we looked at the book of Jude, we saw that those who get involved in the false teaching, who, who adopt the false teaching and live by the false teaching of the world, are destroyed. I mean, we saw last time three groups of people, who, three groups of persons who were, who were destroyed that Jude talks about. He talks about believers, Israelite believers, who God destroyed because they refused to accept and to trust the promises of God. They were believers. And God didn't destroy them eternally. He destroyed them physically. The, the, you could say the sin unto death. He killed them in the wilderness for the 40 years of wandering and didn't allow them to enter the promised land. The second group that we saw were angels, angels who rebelled against God. And so Jude says they are reserved. Now, for them, it is eternal punishment. For them, it is eternal punishment. Believers can't lose their salvation. So that, that first group, Israelite believers, uh, they were just destroyed physically in the sense that God took them out. The second group, rebellious angels that Jude talked about last time we met, they are reserved for eternal punishment. And then the third group were the unbelievers, the unbelieving men of Sodom and Gomorrah. They are also reserved for eternal punishment, not because of their, the sin that they committed, but because of their refusal to accept Christ, to, 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 to trust in the Lord for salvation. So Jude talked to us about and, and showed us in his book about the characteristics of false teachers. There are three characteristics that Jude focused on. Lust, rejection of authority, and arrogance. We saw that last time. And what the devil and his minions, false teachers, do is they take these characteristics that, is, that are the characteristics of false teachers. These are the characteristics that Jude said, hey, watch out. Watch out, because those are the characteristics of false teachers. So what the devil does is he uses those same characteristics as weapons against you, offensive weapons against God's children. These are the offensive weapons of the devil and false teachers that, that we saw before. Rejection of Christ and authority. Offensive weapon number two, worldly lusts. And these, are, these verses here are verses here in Jude. We saw it last time. We're going to see more of these offensive weapons today. Offensive weapon number three used against you is arrogance. In other words, the world tries to get you to be arrogant. Because if you're arrogant, then I'm the boss of me. I'm not submitting to the God who is. I'm the boss. Right? So that's why the world tries to sell you arrogance. And just turn your TV on. Just sign on the Internet. Just turn the radio on. I mean, these offensive weapons are everywhere. Everywhere. Number four, flattering people to gain advantage. Number five, mocking divine truth. So Jude tells us, defend yourselves. 
He, he issues this call to arms. Defend yourselves. Pick up the weapons that God has given you. Defensive weapons, which are divine truth, prayer in the Spirit, the love of God, hope in Christ's return, and mercy. And we'll see these defensive weapons. We'll see this slide a number of times today. Jude is going to start the passage this morning, which is verse 17. He's going to start with reminding us about what the apostles have told us. So in Jude 17, he says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the third time. Jude loves threes. He loves groupings of threes. There are all these triads in this little book of 25 verses. And this is one of the, uh, this is one of the triads, one of the groupings of three. This is the third time he's told us of the importance of the Word of God. If, if we don't appreciate the Word of God and understand it and expose ourselves to it, then we're vulnerable to false teaching. We're vulnerable to it. And so Jude says in verse 3, the importance of the Word of God. He says, the faith which was once handed down to, all, to, to the saints, once for all handed down to the saints. In verse 5, he said, I desire to remind you, to remind us of what? Of God's Word. And now here in verse 17, he says, remember, remember, call to mind. We can't call something to mind if we don't know it. That's why it's so important to study God's love letter to us, which is the Scriptures. So here in verse 17, he says, Remember the words spoken beforehand by the apostles. So, so what was the chain? What was the chain of communication? The Father, to Jesus, to the apostles, to you and me in the Scriptures, right? That's the chain of communication. When the apostles saw, the saw Jesus, they, they saw the Father because Jesus is fully God and fully man. And let, let, let's, just, let's just be honest here. Rejection of God's word is really about rejection of God's Christ. I mean, that's, that's what Jesus says in the Great Commission, right? I mean, the Great Commission, Jesus says, I've got the authority, all authority in heaven and on earth, in the whole universe, to the glory of the Father. I've got it all. And part of authority is power. Right? Authority and power are closely linked. Christ, the Father has given Christ all authority and power. The Hebrew word Mashiach, translated into Greek, is Mashiach is where we get Messiah. You translate Mashiach into Greek, you get Christos. Translate Christos into English, you get Christ. Mashiach means the anointed one, the chosen one of God. And so this is an issue of authority. It's an issue of authority. Submitting to the Word of God is an issue of being willing to submit to the authority of Christ. That's why Jesus said in the Great Commission, when he comes up to the eleven, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching him to observe all that I commanded you. In other words, Jesus says, I claim divine revelation. I am the source of divine revelation. All of the scriptures are read through the lens of me. Jesus claims that authority. How can he claim it? What does it say in verse 19? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He puts himself on the level of the Father, 
and the Spirit, because he's co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Spirit. He is fully God and fully man. And so rejection of the Word of God is really about rejection of the authority of Christ. Let's look at verse 17 and 18 together. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. This phrase, last time, is, is a curious phrase. Last time, what, what, what's, what's he talking about? He, he's talking to his readers about the last time, that, that they're in the last time, but we're in the last time too. What, what, what does this phrase, last time, mean? It means the time between Jesus being here, the, the, the first advent, the incarnation, and the time when he returns. It's the time right before, the, the, the time period before he returns to judge and rule. It's the last events. These are the last events, the last time that we're living in, which is between his first coming and his second coming. And we see that just a couple of verses earlier in verses 14 and 15, where Jude talks about the Lord came when many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. Now, this hasn't happened yet, but it's in the past tense. It's in the past tense because it is so certain to occur. Jude says it in the past tense as if it's already happened because it is so certain to occur. So back to verse 8, excuse me, verse 18. This concept of the last time is the last time the events that happen before Christ returns to judge and rule. So Jude's hearers were in the last time, and we're in the last time. It refers to the church age plus the seven-year tribulation, those, that, those time periods before Christ returns. And Jude says mockers. He uses the word mockers. He's, he's, he's quoting what the apostles said, where the, apostle, the apostles say in the last time there will be mockers, mockers who make fun of God. Mockers who make fun of his word. I mean, to the world, to the culture, God is a joke. I mean, if you want to juice up your cuss word, put the name of God in it. Put the name of his Christ in your cuss word if you want to make it stronger. I mean, right? That's, that's what happens. Because even the unbeliever knows that there's power in the word. Power in the name. But they mock. They mock the God who is, the fact that God would even let us mention his name is something that should instill wonder and awe and reverence in us. But God is a God of mercy. He's a God of patience. One day his patience will be finished and his son will return because there is a day of reckoning and we'll talk about that in a minute. Then Jude goes on at the end of verse 18, following after their own ungodly lusts. The world and the culture are full of lust. Like I said, just, just sign on the internet. Just get on your radio. Just get on your TV. It's just full of lust. Power lust, money lust, sexual lust, uh, popularity lust. Just lust, lust, lust. I mean, it's, they're selling it. The world is selling it. Pleasure, the pleasure that comes from lust is here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's here today and gone tomorrow. That's why the Apostle John said in 1 John 2, 16, 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. So false teachers promote the temporary pleasure of lust. I mean, the world doesn't own pleasure. God created pleasure. God created sex. God created uh, prosperity. God created leisure. God created pleasure. But within his boundaries, within his fence, don't let the world own pleasure. That's not, the world didn't create pleasure. God created pleasure, but within his boundaries. And so we're to enjoy pleasure within God's boundaries. The minute you get outside of God's boundaries, now you've taken something that God created and turned it into something that is being worshipped, in, into an idol. God created pleasure, but the world, like everything else that God creates, that Satan just twists it just a little bit, creates a new perspective, and alters God's design and turning it into something that is sinful. So false teachers promote the temporary pleasures of lust, and that's why the scripture calls them lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 2 Timothy 3, 4. So lust and mocking divine truth are two of the offensive weapons that are used against me and against you. Let's look at verse 19. These, Jews talking about the false teachers, are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. They cause divisions by promoting false teaching, by promoting false doctrine. And they're worldly-minded because the fo they follow the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. They're devoid of the Spirit because the unbeliever has not been baptized by the Spirit. And if you have a false teacher who's a believer, then that believer is quenching the Holy Spirit to use the words of 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. Well, now Jude's going to shift. He's going he's to pivot. He's going to pivot away from describing the attack of the false teachers. That, that's what he's been describing. Watch out for the false teachers. Now he's going to pivot and shift to what we're supposed to do. He's going to shift to the defensive weapons that God gives us. The weapons, defensive weapons of divine truth, <laughs> prayer in the spirit, the love of God, hope in Christ's return, and mercy. Let me tell you, mercy, how can that be a weapon? How can that be a defensive weapon? I mean, the world thinks of mercy. And mercy? No. The, the, the world craves pride and arrogance. But the scripture says we are to be merciful. And that's one of the defensive weapons that we'll, we'll see in a minute. Let's start with divine truth. Verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. The building up on your most holy faith. This is, again, divine truth. Jude just hammers this on. Divine truth, divine truth, divine truth. Because that's our defense. That, that, that's our grid to defend ourselves from the attack of false teaching. And that's why Will read to us Acts 20, verses 29 through 32. Be on the alert. Be on the alert, Paul says. And then in verse 32 of Acts 20, 
He says, and now I commend you to God and to the world and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. The word builds us up so that we are able to defend ourselves against the attacks of false teaching. Then at the last part of verse 20 in Jude, we see the defensive weapon of prayer. There we read, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, prayer is often misunderstood because often prayer is done in arrogance. Prayer is done in demanding that God bless our sin, right? I mean, you have someone who's engaged in this lust or that lust, power, money, sexual, whatever, and they're demanding that God bless them. Demanding that God bless their sin. Prayer must be free of sin. That's why in the Proverbs, Proverbs 28.9, it says, He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, in other words, from, from listening to the instruction of God, even his prayer is an abomination. That's a pretty strong word. An abomination. I don't want my prayer to be an abomination to God. But if I come to God and say, this is my pet sin. I mean, it's not said this way, right? But I'm engaged in this sin. <clears throat> And I want, to, I want you to bless me, God. I want you to give me your favor. Shower me with your favor. This activity that I'm, that I'm engaged in, I want you to bless it. But actually, that activity is an offense to God. Then I'm coming to God in arrogance. Because prayer is submission. A word that our culture finds most disgusting. Submission. Prayer is submission to the God who is. And so in Psalm 66, 18, we're told, if I regard in wickedness or iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Prayer is an act of submission. Isaiah 66, 2 says, but to this one I will look. This is God speaking. To this one I will look with favor. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. When was the last time we trembled at the word of God? Tremble. He says, tremble. That's the one I'm going to look at with favor. Tremble at my word. To approach me with awe, God says, and reverence. And the word that comes from me that's been recorded in the scriptures. So in humility, we must confess our sins before God. 1 John 1, 9. We need, we need to confess our sins to him before we come to him asking him for favor. And so we're told by Jude here, to pray in the Holy Spirit. That is a defensive weapon that we use ourselves to, de to, to, to defend ourselves from the attack of false teaching. Paul says the same thing. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Do it all the time. Do it all the time. Why, do, why does Jude say that? Why does Paul say that? Because it's an act of submission to God. It's putting God first and acknowledging that he is God and I am not. It's an act of humility. It's the opposite of arrogance. It's the opposite of rejecting God's authority. The next offensive weapon that Jude gives us is the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God, verse 21 says. Remember what Jude said in verse 1? That we are beloved in God the Father. Beloved in God the Father. That's a source of encouragement. 
Jude wants to encourage us because we live in a fallen, broken world with physical ailments and physical diseases and we, have, we still have our sin nature. We sin and we're being bombarded all the time with false teaching and so Jude wants to encourage us with the love of God to, for us to know that we are in God's love. You see, we are born the enemies of God. The scripture's not very flattering with that. But it says, Alex Garcia, y'all, every human being is born the enemy of God because we're sinners. No one has to teach a two-year-old to say no to mama. Right? I mean, it's just, it's in the two-year-old. We're rebels by nature and not, like, not in a cool way. You know, rebel without a cause, that kind of... No, God doesn't dig that. I mean, we are enemies. The, we're born the enemies of God because we're sinners by nature. And so God says, you're my, my enemy, subject to eternal condemnation, but I love you. So I'm going to send my son to die for you, Jesus Christ, to pay for your sins. And if you, will, if you will accept his free gift of eternal life, then you'll go from being the enemy of God to being the daughter or the son of God, the child of God. And God offers that as this free act of mercy. And then once we accept his free gift of eternal life, and it has nothing to do with, with doing good works, because there is only one good work that counts, and that is the, the work of Jesus Christ. Once we do that, once we go from being the enemy of God to being the child of God, and it's an act of faith, faith in Christ alone, then we're securely in the love of God, and nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. What does Paul say in Romans 8:38? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are sweet, sweet words. So knowing that God loves us encourages us for the spiritual combat that we are engaged in. Your next weapon, defensive weapon, is hope in Christ's return. We see that at the end of verse 21, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. When Jesus first came, he came as the meek, mild lamb who opened not his mouth before the slaughter, Isaiah 53. But my friends, when he comes back, he will not come back as the lamb. When he returns, he will come as the lion, the roaring Lion, the conquering king. Just, just read Revelation 19. It is a brutal warrior who comes to destroy his enemies because he has been exalted by the Father, given the name above all names, King of kings, Lord of lords, to which every knee will bow, Philippians says, and every tongue will confess because it will be utterly undeniable that he has been given all authority, which includes power, by the Father. And so when he returns, it will be the day of the Lord. The scriptures, the, day, the principle of the day of the Lord runs through the scriptures. Sometimes it's called the day, sometimes it's called that day, sometimes it's called the great day, sometimes it's called the day of the Lord. But it runs through all the scriptures because there is a day of reckoning. I know the culture... Blows that off. What? That day of reckoning. What are you talking about? There is a day of accountability. Hebrews says, 
Man is appointed once to die and then the judgment. We're all going to be judged. Now, the unbelievers judged at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, and cast in the lake of fire because he, he refused to accept Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. The believer is judged, or you could say evaluated, because we can't lose our salvation. We're evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. Guess who sits at both of those because all authority has been given to him? Christ. Christ saves us from his own wrath. That's mercy. That's the offer of salvation. The offer of, of, of the gospel is that Christ, who has been given all authority and all judgment, who will sit at the, at the great white throne judgment to, to judge unbelievers, Christ dies for us, offering us grace to spare us from his own wrath. Because God cannot just blow off sin. God can't just say, ah, I'm not going to worry about sin because you guys are pretty cool. No. His righteousness, his holiness demands punishment for sin. And so Christ is coming back. The evaluation for believers at the judgment seat of Christ is not about whether we go to hell or not because the believer is securely in the grip of the Father and the Son, Jesus says, and we are saved. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's the passage I just read a moment ago. And so the evaluation for believers is whether we get eternal rewards or, or not. Not rewards for 50 years, or for 90 years, or for 9,000 years, or for 9 million years, or for 9 billion years, or for 9 trillion years, but 9 trillion times 9 trillion times 9, forever. That's what we're evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ at. But again, all authority has been given to Christ, and so he is the one who does the evaluation for us, and he's the one who does the judgment for unbelievers. So the point here is Christ is coming back. And the day of the Lord is coming. That is the day where the Lord intervenes in history and either blesses in extraordinary ways for his children, believers who have accepted Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Or he intervenes in history to judge in extraordinary ways, in horrific ways, because the lake of fire is described by Jesus in Matthew 8, by the meek, mild Jesus, is described as utter darkness and the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where he wants no one to go. And so he offers himself freely to whomever will accept him by grace. By, by grace. So Christ's return should influence how we live. That's Jude's point. Look anxiously, wait anxiously for Christ's return. That should influence how we live. That's why Paul says in Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Deny the lust that the world is selling you because they're selling it hard because they got nothing else to sell. They got nothing else to sell. Deny that. And then Paul goes on and says, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Why? Looking for the, this is, this is Titus 2, 13 that I'm reading. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Looking for his hope, for the hope of his return, influences how we live. It influences our priorities. It strengthens us. It gets our minds right. So, 
This is one of our defensive weapons, Jude says. And notice that Jude emphasizes the triune nature of the God who is. In verse 1, we see the triune nature of God. Three persons in one Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One, in essence, three in person. So in verse 1, Jude says, to those who are called by the Spirit, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now here in verse 20 and 21, praying in the Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, which is the reference to the Father, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God who purchased you from the slave market of sin is triune. Three persons in one Godhead. Now Jude addresses our final defensive weapon, our final defensive weapon, which is mercy. Mercy, item five there on the screen. It's the opposite of arrogance. In verse 22, Jude says, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Verse 23, save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So in verse 22, Jude's saying, look, there are going to be some who are wavering. They're on the fence. Do I go this way with error or do I follow divine truth? They're, 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 they're kind of on the fence. They're, they're wavering. And so Jude says, show them mercy. Show them mercy by speaking the truth in love. The only truth that there is. The only divine, absolute truth that there is, which is the word of God. So show them mercy by speaking the truth in love with the goal of getting them away from apostasy. Apostasy just means falling away, rebelling against God. So the goal there is to get them away from the apostasy of false teaching. And then in verse 23, the first part of verse 23, Jude's saying, show mercy to unbelievers by giving them the gospel. Tell them that God loves them. Tell them that God sent his son to die for them. And if they believe in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone, not in Muhammad, not in Buddha, not in Joseph Smith of Mormonism, not in Mary Baker Eddy of Christian Science, but in the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ, who was fully God, fully man, he's the only one who died for the sins of the world. And so that's the message of, of the gospel. And you, you show mercy to the unbeliever in giving them that message of the gospel with the goal of sparing them the horrors, the eternal horrors of the lake of fire. And then at the end of verse 23, show mercy to those who are involved in apostasy. Jude says, garment polluted by the flesh. Garment polluted by the flesh. We, we, those are words that we, it's kind of foreign to our ears, right? I mean, we, we wouldn't say, hey, that garment's polluted by the flesh, man. I mean, we, wouldn't, we won't talk that way. But, but what he's saying is when he references the flesh, this, this appears to be sexual immorality that he's talking about because he refers to the flesh. And he describes this balance. Mercy with fear. Mercy with, with fear. In other words, fear of God. Because God brings judgment on apostasy. And so we have to have this balance. If we have mercy without the fear of judgment that God imposes, 
If all, if all we have is mercy and we're having a conversation with someone about the sin that they're involved in, but we don't have the fear of God, then we have a tendency to lean towards, I'm going to be so sympathetic with this person that, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I might even call his sin something other than sin. I, I don't want to offend that person. I don't want that person's feelings to be upset, so I'm going to show mercy to them, so much mercy that maybe I'm not even going to call their activity a sin when it is. But Jude says, no, 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 don't do that. There's a balance here. You should so, show mercy in approaching someone, encouraging them to, to run from their sin, but also you need to have fear. Fear of God. In other words, respect all for God. Because God imposes judgment, judgment on sin. And so if, if all we have is fear and no mercy, then we're going to get all self-righteous and say, oh, I can't believe you're doing that sin. I don't do that sin. I'm so much better than you. Right? So we have to have both. We have to have mercy, compassion, and fear of God or respect of God. Sidlow Baxter says it well when he says, we must love even while we contend against the errors of apostatizers. We must love their souls even while we oppose their words and deplore their ways. Sometimes it is delicately difficult, he says, to keep these separate, but the love of Christ in our hearts will put wisdom in our lips. Let me just sum it up. We should love what God loves and hate what God hates. God doesn't hate people. He loves people but he hates sin. So we should love the sinner, but hate the sin. That's what God does. Jude then closes his little book with this beautiful prayer about the majesty and glory and love and protection that God gives us. I almost hate to break it up, but these are I need to break it up into two, the two verses here. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, we will stand before the God who is. Make no mistake about it. There is a day where we give an account. And that's, that's at the judgment seat of Christ. Where we are evaluated. And it is God who sustains us. In the war that we're in now, in the war of the ages, it is He who sustains us. He is ready, willing, and able to do that. We just have to submit to Him. Obey Him. As I say, two words that our culture finds most disgusting. Obedience and submission. Most offensive. Obey. Submit. What are you talking about? I ain't obeying to nobody. I'm not submitting to nobody. But that's what the Scripture calls us to do to submit to the God who is. One day, we will lay down our weapons, our defensive weapons, and we'll go home. And we will enter into the joy of our master. And we'll go home from the war. And we will rest. And we'll hear, we, sh we, sh we should be working towards, we should be longing for Longing to hear those sweet, sweet words that Jesus used in the parable of the talents, the parable of these coins, where one slave wasted the coins that he gave. 
that the master gave. But the other slave used them wisely. And so Jesus says in Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. We are called the doulos of God. That's the Greek word for slave. We are called the slaves of God. There's no room for arrogance in that word slave. He is our master. And let me say, we are in good company when we are called the slaves of God. The Old Testament prophets were called the slaves of God. The apostles were called the slaves of God. Jesus himself was called the slave of God. So we should long for those words to enter into the joy of your master. Verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority belong to God and his Christ. They don't belong to the devil. They don't belong to fallen angels. They don't belong to people. They don't belong to false teachers. They are the exclusive monopoly of the God who is. And notice, these are eternal characteristics. That's why Jude ends with before all time. That's eternity past. Now, that's the present. And forever. I love... The, 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 the Greek words that are used for forever. The Greek words that are used are for all the ages, translated forever. For all the ages, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority belong to God. So in closing today, the book of Jude has taught us that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. The life that we live is not in a playground. It is in a battleground. And Jude teaches us to prepare ourselves for the attack of false teachers. They attack us with the demonic spiritual weapons of rejection of Christ and rejection of, his, of Christ's authority, including any other authority. It's rejection of Christ and authority. They attack us with worldly lusts. They attack us with arrogance, trying to get us to be arrogant like false teachers are. They attack us with flattery, flattering people to gain advantage. They attack us with mocking divine truth. These are the, the spiritual weapons of the devil and his fallen angels that are used against us, and they're used very effectively against us unless we pick up the defensive weapons and use them that God has given us. The defensive weapons of divine truth, prayer in the Spirit, the love of God, hope in Christ's return, and mercy. Usually I close with a prayer, and I'm going to close with a prayer today, but this isn't my prayer. I want to close with Jude's prayer of verses 24 and 25, which is this prayer of this benediction for us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.